0: The following Dharma talk was given by Ron Hogan-Green. Hogan-Sensei is a lay teacher in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at zmm.org. Thanks for listening. Good afternoon to all near and far. Wednesday uh, show and uh, she talked about the dragon girl, an eight-year-old girl who could instantly address the suffering of her and the world and come to deep realization instantly. Night in the Fusatsu talk, Shugen Roshi, taking a more gradual path, used the liturgy of Fusatsu and skillful means to speak of how to address our suffering and be free of that, using the liturgy, using the many ways of practice. So perhaps you can guess what I'm going to talk about today from a different perspective, but the same topic. So this is called Momentum, and it's by Amy Mann. And by the way, I use often contemporary songs and poems because I feel that the same issues the Buddha faced, we face, and each culture has its own way of expressing that, which don't necessarily have to be wrapped in a Buddhist wrapper and yet clearly point at what we're working with. Oh, for the sake of momentum, I've allowed my fears to get larger than life. And it's brought me to my current agenda, whereupon I deny fulfillment has yet to arrive. And I know life is getting, even when it's approaching torture, I've got my routine. Oh, for the sake of momentum, even though I agree with that stuff about seizing the day. But I hate to think of effort expended, all those minutes and days and hours I've frittered away. And I know life is getting shorter. I can't bring myself to set the scene. Even when it's approaching torture, I've got my routine. But I can't confront the doubts I have I can't admit that maybe the past was bad. And so, for the sake of momentum, I'm I'm condemning the future to death so it can match the past. I spared you from trying to sing it. (laughs) It does sound a lot better when she sings it. (laughs) Much, much, much better. So we still are facing it, aren't we? These couple of thousand plus years later, we still face the fear, and how we live with our fear determines to a significant degree how well we will live, how this life is. These particular lyrics might seem extremely depressing, or might not seem even relevant to your life. But on the other hand, we are here. And, uh, you know, I'm thinking about uh, Sean's talk and Shugan's talk and my talk. One might think the Buddha only has one teaching that he's pointing at. One might think that. This song is about momentum, which is karma. I think it's Newton's first law, which says, in effect... Things in motion in a particular direction tend to keep going in that direction, unless something stops it. This song is about the ongoing turning of a wheel of samsara, birth and death, and all the stages. You've probably seen that wheel, Um, it's got it all, and it ceaselessly turns, and uh, it's the wheel of suffering. Except you might note, way up in the corner is the Buddha outside the circle, sitting Zazen, but watching carefully. What we're being offered is Dharma. Dharma. Phenomena. Reality. And as this path of practice, it is the teachings of reality which turns out to be complete, whole, not caught up by the mind of suffering, or the search for a fixed ultimate satisfaction. Dharma asks of us, through our practice, to be real. To practice it. To practice it means, in effect, it implies it's not an accomplishment, it's something we're working with. We're practicing it. To use our practice to enter into seeing ourselves and others as we truly are and to manifest what we are seeing in our being. It asks us not to wait to some imaginary level of, comp- of completeness but to to go, to do this now, right now. So, it's not at a given point in our life that the Dharma is applicable, but it's the journey we take as a life with its hills and valleys, streams, rivers before us, beautiful vistas, ugly landscapes, All that we experience and ultimately live out of, to take that up as compassionate activity, which is the natural outcome of Dharma practice. To study it, to investigate it, to sit with it, to contemplate it, and to do this most personally in the midst of our zazen. To let it hoover in the background as we sit in, And then, as we get a chance to bring it forth, to live it and to share it with others. It's a simple ask. It's not a measurement. It's not a success or failure. It's a deep, deep process. Very deep. I think until we get well into this practice quite a while, we begin to realize how deep, just how deep this practice invites us to go. It really is pretty simple, although the initial step is subtle and challenging, to be carefully aware of our mind. This is your thoughts, your feelings, your concepts, your ideas the things that we place between ourselves and the Dharma. Although that too is Dharma. But, of course, we anchor it and call it something to fix it. Although we may think of those thoughts and concepts and ideas as who we are, who we are, it turns out that are in our investigation of Dharma, Sazen, for example, we begin to realize that that's just a small and limited self-perspective of who we are. It's not to be discarded. It's functional. We need it. But it's not even close to the whole picture. One way to understand what Dharma, reality, is, at least to me, I I came across some paintings by Cezanne. Am I pronouncing that right? My French is not so good. (laughs) His paintings, as I see them, and I see the same thing in Dido's photographs, and the same thing in Hojun's paintings and in some of her pots does not reflect an object, a thing, but shows all that brings that object into being, subtly, the subtle sense of emotion through color and reflection that echoes and relates to each other, That's what I see. And it strikes me that this is much closer to who we are than some idea that we might have of our compulsive self. So how do we start? We start with what we can know. Are we aware of our feelings beneath our thoughts? Not to track them but just an open awareness of them. No matter what your practice is, are we aware of them? And what drives those feelings? I think so much of what drives it is fear. And where does fear live? Do you know where fear lives in your body? Do you know how you hold your body when you're afraid? Sometimes it's much more subtle than that. I walked around, this is my mind speaking, I walked around like a robot. For about 35 years. Rigid, fixed, strong, because I worked at it. But robotic, in a sense. Couldn't harm me. Did I know how my body feel? One day I was working out, bench pressing as hard as I could. And a physical therapist who was a close friend of mine walked by and he stopped and just looked at me. I was stand, standing up from the bench. And he said, you know, your head's like that. I said, what do you mean my head's like that? It's straight. No, your head's like that. <laughs> and he grabbed me and he brought me to the mirror. And my head was like that. (laughs) And he said, you know where this comes from? I didn't say fear, but why was I building my body? He said, this comes from lifting about 25% more weight than your body's designed to do. But don't let that stop you, he said. (laughs) Are we aware of what we feel and think? What we hold on to hidden beneath our thoughts, hidden beneath our emotions, a sense of confident certainties that position us to be fixed. How does our fear make ourselves secure in the dream of what we take as a solid permanent reality? Klesis is the name of the poisons that we cultivate, that we grow, that we inflict upon ourselves. Ignorance, and what comes out of ignorance? Not understanding the way of things. Attachments, greed, greediness, or desire for what we like and what we will not let go of. Aversion, Anger, passion, aversion for what we don't like, or what prevents us from getting what we want. To me, uh, a very interesting form of passion, aggression, is numbness. One might think numbness is not that. But I think it is. Using our fear not to feel kind of a reverse passion, which nevertheless is passion disguised as a lack of passion. To me, that's fascinating. That, you know, the more I look at karma in selected instances, the more I see that the fears of projection that of what's going to happen as a result of A will be B, and we don't want that. And then further down the line, the opposite of B happens. I realize I'm not expressing that very well, but that's such a consistent thing that I see. We do not know what's going to happen. So numbness is aggressive. Isn't that an interesting perspective? It's a passive aggressive. It's a passion which gives us permission to be the aggressor, while feeling like we're not being aggressive. My responsibility for my problems are lifted. It's not mine. In numbness, I can deny responsibility for this situation. Pretty convenient. In blindness, I can deny my responsibility for this situation. It's one of the reasons sangha is so important. Such a key. Because every one of you is holding up a mirror to me. Thank you very much. And I can see myself reflected. Unfortunately, sometimes it's a funny mirror. The reflection is not what I'm soliciting. But there it is. The interesting thing about being numb is that often we have little awareness of our lack of feeling. Or perhaps we can acknowledge our numbness. But tend to take it as the end point. After all, we're numb. Where else are we going to go with it? That's the end of it. Period. Stop. Heart, stop. Is that true? And of course, our numbness itself is a feeling. What's beneath it? And it turns out it is workable out of careful awareness of our tendencies. There is a painful choice here. Not just with numbness, but I'm using that as an example. Empower it and lock yourself in the numbness cage, which is so wonderfully convenient. Or break it open and express what we're so desperate to express and scared shitless to express. What is that expression? Sometimes it's rage that we've not given ourselves permission to feel and express. A deep-seated anger You know, it's interesting. One of the things Amy Mann said, and if you've ever seen a picture of Amy Mann, she's striking. She said, growing up in, I think it's the 70s and 80s, maybe, yeah, she said, I was traumatized. She was speaking for all women. It was traumatic. I can't know that. But it makes a deep impression on me. Attachment and aversion. They rest on the subtleness of fear. So when I'm speaking of fear, I'm not talking of the kind of fear, oh, there's a mountain lion up there. Uh, I mean, that's there, but that's useful. I mean, you know, it's a mountain lion. I spent a lot of my life in Colorado. There There are mountain lions in those mountains, and I lived in the mountains. I never saw one, but I heard them. That kind of fear is not what I'm talking about. It's much more subtle than that. It's subtle because it's ever so present and infiltrates our body and mind in patterns that we just find it difficult to be aware of, and yet becomes exposed in our practice, becomes open in our practice, becomes available to us in our practice. It's still fearful, right? That's what makes it so challenging. It's not like becoming aware of it and it goes away, but that's the first step. Now we know what is before us. You know, I didn't understand what drove me until I was 30 years old. Why, Why was I doing Zen? Why was I so committed to it? And I realized when I was 30, in the middle of a session, and I've talked about this many times in many ways, that the most important event happened when I was two years old, to me, when my mother died. And I have never paid the slightest bit of attention to that. I was aware of it, but no attention whatsoever. None. It didn't exist, so far as I was concerned. Isn't that interesting? It was a, more than shocking. It was like there was enormous, an enormous piece of me that was missing that I had never seen. And later, much later, in an Ango, I used that investigation of her life, who she was, how she lived, how she died, where she was buried, which nobody seemed to know. That's my Ango investigation. Talk about numbness and aversion. Talk about the subtleness and pervasiveness of fear. Talk about the blindness of it. Fear is protection. It rests on the, on the idea of a permanent self. That's what it's protecting. It's really that simple. It's protecting me against me. I don't want the pain or the discomfort. I don't want it. But sometimes we begin to realize that the alternative is worse. An incomplete life. A life that's passing but is yet to be fulfilled. We do not know in the sense of knowing with the absolute knowledge of our own direct experience who we are. What we are and what this is all about. It's so difficult to deeply acknowledge that in the midst of all our knowledge, all our fears, all our attempts of controlling, we actually truly do not know. If you deeply acknowledge that and open up to it, can you see the freedom? Can you see that freedom? In allowing yourself not to know, that is a, the way in. We're not stuck, we're not pinned. We're free. Oh, for the sake of momentum, I've allowed my fears to get larger than life. And it's brought me to my current agendum. I looked up that word agendum, it means obviously agenda, but it's a word. <laughs> You know, I'm surrounded in this monastery when I come here with people sometimes for whom English was not their first language, who are so much articulate and knowledgeable about English, but irrespective of that. And so it's brought me to my current agenda whereupon I deny fulfillment as yet to arrive. Imagine that. I deny fulfillment has yet to arrive. I deny my life as it is now. Shuganamoshi talked about last night how crucial, he's talked about it through the Ango, how crucial it is to have faith, okay, in the Dharma, in your true nature, in yourself, in yourself as a Buddha, in yourself as someone who can and is in the process of realizing your true nature to have a deep and abiding faith, a refuge in that faith, a willingness in having that faith to question it, to hold it up to the light, to see it, to be challenged by it, and to look at your other alternatives to not having that faith, and where that, le- where that has led you. Oh, for the sake of momentum, I've allowed my fears to get larger than life, it's pretty explicit and it's brought me here and I'm denying fulfillment has yet to arrive it's already arrived it's all here you just have to dig into it a bit that's all that's, that's the story for the sake of momentum here's the karma momentum is the life we've created for ourselves not good Not bad. Just ours. Is it the life you want? Momentum is the way we accept that what has happened to us is outside our control. And so we simply sail a little life ship in the direction that the wind takes us. It's momentum. It's a life of self-disempowerment. Consciously Self-disempowerment. We don't think of it that way, but we're consciously doing it. It's a life where we're... It's a life that is a small, tightly fitting frame. It's tight. It allows our narrative within our pain to make sense. We're making sense of why this. Life hurts. And this narrative is our control. And we tend to treasure it. And you all know, we all know our narratives, right? We're certainly familiar with them. We think them every day. And I know life is getting shorter. I can't bring myself to set the scene. Even when it's approaching torture, I got my routine. It's fine. It's approaching torture. Ah! Well, it's okay. I'm going to make it okay. Well, we all know that life is getting shorter, but is that real for us? Is that actually real for us? I can tell you, as we age, we know this. I've told this story before, but one day when I was in Florida, I looked out my window, and there's a Tennis really is a pickleball court, but they call it a tennis court. And a guy dropped right in front of my eyes. He's playing tennis, he goes, and and I run out there. He's dead. Life is getting shorter. And Neo and I did what we could do, but I knew he was dead. I can't bring myself to set the scene, even when it's approaching torture. Got my routine. So we will see this more and more as we get older. I promise you. You see how long that health and healing list is that we chant. Very familiar names there, people I have known for a long, long time. In some cases, not know, but know of. Or perhaps we can't see others very well as we age, because our own well of grief is so profound, doesn't allow any other possibilities of seeing others. I mentioned, I sometimes live in Florida in this condo, and it's sobering to be in a community where nobody that I'm aware of is practicing. The concerns are pretty narrow and painful. And the move to aggression through speech and occasionally through action is almost instantaneous. It doesn't take much. So we've got our routine that relies on the weight of routine and a sense of safety. We have routine here too with a very different purpose. Our routines are what is familiar. And no matter how clearly we see the approaching storm and know the center cannot hold, we're holding on to what we know. We trust our pain. We get something from it, right? Security. It's so familiar. And we look for it to sustain ourselves. There's always a gain. We're always gaining something from this. Is it what we want? Well, that's a good question to ask, but we're gaining. Oh, for the sake of momentum, even though I agree with that stuff about seizing the day, but I hate to think of effort expended, all those minutes and days and hours I have fritted away the challenge of our conditioned self is that the protective conditioning is seemingly automatic and seamless. I remember one of the first times I visited a Zen center in Denver, just the first days of my practice, um, one of the leaders of the group, her name was Susan, Um, was sitting, and she got up. And I asked her a question about my confusion and how I can just make it go away, you know, like instantaneously, like the dragon girl. And she said, are you confused? And I said, yes. She said, start there. Start where you are. And that has stuck with me for 45 years. Got it. Wherever I am, that's where I enter. I don't always like where I am. But that wasn't the question. And that wasn't the response. It wasn't about that. If it's about what I like or don't like, I wouldn't be doing this. I have to grow to love this, which I have. But it's not free. So enter the study of the self right where we are. It actually doesn't matter where we are because we do not really know where we are. Isn't that interesting? We know what we feel. But measurement independent of that? I don't know how to do that. And the good news, wherever we are, the karma of where we are, is not immutable. We've studied karma recently in Anango, and we kept emphasizing. Karma is not a one-to-one relationship. It's complicated, right? Find something that only has one cause. I dare you. I can't. What happens when we change? We change our karma. Go in a different direction. Understand things differently. Things self. How else will we know what's behind the door that binds us? How do we open that door and step through? If we wait to know, we will never go through. Because we will never know. It's like if you've ever gone out in the bright sunshine with your eyes closed, really closed, and you know, there's a sense of light, but just that. I'm thinking New Mexico sun. (laughs) And then you open your eyes. Holy mackerel! It's so different. And what I previously experienced the light, the vista, the place, the specificity of reality, the wholeness of reality with open eyes. It's so different than what I thought it might be. You know, we're not going to do this, but if I asked you, I've done it, I think I've even done it in a talk. I've asked you all to close your eyes and just imagine this room and then after about a minute or so to open them and ask you to look around. You get a a hint of the specificity of reality we cannot imagine. The reality of reality that we cannot know until we enter it. Even though I agree with that stuff about seizing the day, but I hate to think of... I kind of stop there. I hate to think of... That's a stopping point for us, isn't it? I hate to think of it. I don't want to face it. As soon as there's any possibility of a path to freedom appearing, our protective conditioning moves right in. And it's so smooth. You know, one of the most interesting things in Dyson and working with people is they'll ask a question and an answer is offered or a response is offered. And the first word that comes out of the mouth is, but. Now, it's not always in that form. But that's what it is. And I was talking about this with Aho. And she said, it's a way of deflecting. It's a way of not facing the reality of it. Which I think is very clear. But. She said, it's a way of being special. I am special. Everyone else, the Buddha, can realise themselves. You can realize yourself. You can realise yourself. But I I have my special problems. You know. My neurosis really fucks me up. <laughs> you know, my arm doesn't work. You know, I don't know what to do with that, with that denial. I've pointed innumerable times at Nenshin, who's gone now, but who did many sishin as a quadriplegic in the wheelchair. Now, if anyone had an excuse not to practice, he did. He'd be here for the week, bowel care, all that that being a quadriplegic implies. What bravery! What incredible bravery! He wouldn't be stopped literally till his dying breath, he wouldn't be stopped. It doesn't take that drama. It's much more subtle than that. But it's very large indeed. How large are you? This business, the good news is this business of transformation is incredibly resilient. And that's the business we're in, right? Transformation from our being to our being. Of course, we know nothing's transforming, but our life is different, very different, as we practice. And it's remarkably resilient. What protects us, what allows us to risk, what allows us to fail, quote-unquote, to drop the ball and to pick it up and go, is that the transformation is already complete. Everything's present. You don't need anything extra. The package is whole. There's nothing that needs to come in the mail from Amazon. You got it all. We just have to open our eyes. We just have to head down the path which the Buddha so nicely laid out for us. I hate to think of, that's the place of fear, of aversion. What you fear, what you fear and what happens to you is the same thing. Duh. The fear creates the karma that is guaranteed to happen. If I'm afraid of X, I'm on the lookout for X. I will find it. I'm going to find it. I promise you I'll find it because I am looking for it to protect myself. It's not a game you can win, but it can be really subtle. If I protect myself using my bright intellect, then wherever I go, I'll use my bright intellect. And when I get nervous and scared and threatened, I figure it out. I analyze it. I put it up on the wall as my precepts, I la Martin Luther King and nail it to the wall. Not Martin Luther King, Martin Luther. <laughs> nail it to the wall, and there it sticks. And there you have Protestantism in the United States. And Buddhism isn't immune from that either. And yet, I hate to think of is exactly where practice can enter. It's the wonder that all the stuff that hurts so much and that we're so fearful of is the wonderful opportunity to enter. All we have to do is be aware of it. All we have to do is take refuge in Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, not in some automatic way, but in a practice way that inevitably reflects back to us where we need to put our attention. Not necessarily how we have to figure that out, but where. And that's where we enter. And that's the wonder of practice. It unfailingly shows us. It unfailingly shows us our mind, which is a delusion. That mind that we're rolling with. There's a related song that Amy Mann sings that's related to this one. Just... Gonna sing a little part of it, but it fits right in. It's not what you thought when you first began it. You got what you want. Now you can hardly stand it. But now you know it's not going to stop. It's not going to stop. It's not going to stop till you wise up. The Buddha pointed out very clearly the path of how to wise up. He did a prostration and he offered it to us. It's wonderful news. It's truly wising up. It's true wisdom. He did point at suffering. And we need to see that as well. Particularly ours. Start there. But he pointed at a path out of that suffering. The Buddha invited us to realize our inherent freedom, which is simply to stop. Stop creating the evil. Do good f- for ourselves and by extension to others. So stop. Just stop creating. When we stop to the degree we stop, we see clearly. Nirvana is openly shown to our eyes. It's right before us. It's present in our own life. And this creates a very different kind of karma. And God knows this world needs it. Boy, does it need it. It creates a loving and deeply kind karma which you can manifest as your own being. Thanks so much for listening. To find out more about our ongoing programs and residency opportunities, visit ZMM.org.